Hello and welcome to the SLB podcast where we talk about ELT, SLA and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, president of the SLB Cooperative. And joining me today is Jeff Jordan and other members of the co-op to talk about our things of 2019. Yeah, been better. Uh-huh. Yes, <laughs> Just, it's um, not a good day. No, I think if we'd recorded this yesterday, which was the day of the British general election, we might have been in a different mood. Yes, it's... Um, I mean, I don't think anybody expected quite such a extraordinary um, win for Conservatives. I even, at one point, reading all the stuff on Twitter about these huge queues outside the polling booths, thought maybe there's just a chance, you know, that Labour will actually win. Yeah, no, it's the, as we were we were just talking before we started recording, weren't we, about this uh, social media echo chamber that we seem to live in. We get fed our own opinions back to us. We just seem, seem to see it, all we see is a reflection of our own beliefs and hopes. And it leads to this terrible cognitive dissonance. I don't know about you, but it was 10 o'clock last night or 11 o'clock in Spain when, when the exit polls were published and you were just like... What the fuck has happened? How how can it possibly be that? Um, you know, but yes, I, I thought well they're, they're going to be proved wrong, but in fact they weren't. As right as you say, right on the stroke of uh, eleven o'clock our time, ten o'clock their time, there it was the result. Boom! You could yeah, you could hear <laughs> your dreams being shattered as you awful. You know, yeah. the BBC, IG, all of them. I mean. Uh, and to that extent, you're quite right about the you know uh, cognitive dissonance and the echo chamber effect of, of everybody reading you know and talking to people like them kind of thing. But um, there's no doubt that uh, they did an extraordinary assassination on on uh, Corbyn, and they've been after him you know forever, of course, because he he is fairly you know by British political standards fairly radical. So, and you know, they've done it. They they they've destroyed him. Yeah, yeah. The anti-Semitism thing. They destroyed him with that. They destroyed him with the IRA links and all. I mean, I don't pay attention to that kind of media, but uh, I mean, I'm guessing that's that's the kind of path they took. Stalinist or whatever. Yeah, know. we at least in our <laughs> little bubble, you know, I do see what uh, the male and the sun and and these appalling people are, you know, the way they're they're painting things. I, I'm I'm not sure what power any newspaper has these days, but what's certainly obvious from this is that the power of those to to manipulate and to get precisely to get the right information to the right people at the right time uh, with uh, the way that um, Boris has had his campaign organized for him with a selection of that you know get brexit done to the exclusion of you know, i mean i 
that's what's terrifying. It seems to me, you know, it's quite evident in in the United States and other places, Australia and other places, that now people have their opinions manipulated far more than than you know it was even conceivable twenty years ago. And they they don't care about moral fibre so much. They don't give a shit that he's a liar. Yeah, he's he's a racist. <laughs> that he, you know, the same way that they didn't didn't do Trump any harm to be shown to be sexist and manipulative and a liar as well. I mean that didn't. So throwing all these stones at these guys doesn't actually seem to have much impact. Doesn't change people's minds. Well, as I say, I think uh, now we're just going to forget bloody Parliament and Westminster and, and organise locally. That, you know, now we know that we're, we're up against a Tory state. We know what its values are, what its, its hypocrisy and what it's going to do. And the only response to it is to organise locally, it seems to me. Yes, well, I mean, I, I, I suppose I hold out some slim hopes for... Scotland, maybe uh, the only gloss on all this for me is that Scotland has rejected all that bullshit from down south. Yes, uh, I, I quite agree. It's a bit bloody good. Scotland's always been ahead of the game, hasn't it? To better education. Better, um, and it's good yeah. in a way to see an Ireland too that now have uh, right. you know, the, the one more the nationalist, got one more than the. Um, the MP, so that seems to me slightly progressive. Right, but uh, the problem I see for Scotland is just us going into a kind of uh, blind alley like we've got in Catalonia where you're asking for a referendum, you can't get one, what do you do next? You go yes, on, see, I, see what's happened here, it's been a disaster. It's, uh, the I British think for independence in Catalonia has been an absolute fucking disaster. It's, yeah. a, it's a total horror show. And politics in Spain, as you know, is is, is not getting us anywhere either. And uh, I, I think you're right. I think we're going to see something similar in Scotland. In fact, even this morning, I heard on Radio Four, um, some spokesman for the SNP said that uh, they they'll try uh, a token vote. You know, like um, the one that landed. Uh, our Catalan people in prison. Of course, they won't go to prison, but uh, that's what they'll do. They'll, if they're not allowed um, an official referendum, they'll hold a popular vote anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And, on, and as you say, it's 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 um, it'll just be frustrating. It'll get uh, you know divisive. Um, yes. I can't see much good coming of it. But anyway. Well, this only we can only hope it doesn't end up in scenes like we saw here uh, a couple of years ago when. Yeah. When, uh, the well, uh, it, the, I think they're unlikely to throw people in prison for you know that's uh, still while we're at it we ought to really you know shout out for the Catalan absolutely people who are in prison right now and demand their immediate release. I mean that is just you know. At least that's not likely to happen to any Scottish uh, politician who who demands a referendum. Well, we certainly hope not. Certainly yeah. hope not. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to reprise what you were saying to me before we started recording that we need to go back to a feudal system. <laughs> <laughs> People like your dad. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't need charge. <laughs> Bring some stability. <laughs> well, my father always used to, he, he used to say, "What on earth's the point of having these people 
<laughs> in politics who who earn a living off it. You know, you can't. You know, it's much better to have these toffs who got so much money that you know they can they can be far better trusted not to be corrupt and, and you know because they've got <laughs> quite enough already <laughs> so they can dedicate themselves selflessly to the to the task of serving the people <laughs> oh they're serving the people I thought, we had to, I thought we were the ones who were like indentured uh, you know have to practice practice our cap doffing skills again you know <laughs> anyway yes well I saw your tweet earlier today saying let's get back to local um, struggles well I, I think it's this, uh, I mean I suppose it's been surprising for me to see you uh, endorse uh, a political party because uh, I don't think I've ever heard you speak well of any political party it's the first time that I've ever um, ever recommended voting for one of the main political parties. <clears throat> and it just seemed to me that after the appalling bailout of the bankers in 2008 and, and, and what followed 10 years of austerity and disgusting, uh, you know, things going on, that uh, um, the Labour Party's manifesto was worth uh, supporting. And I, I was interested to see that Chomsky supported him too. Uh, Chomsky, mm. as you know, is an anarchist who doesn't usually um, vote in, um, you know, uh, national elections. But yes, I think it uh, now we're back to the, you know, the the the, the norm, you know, the <laughs> the default position of you don't um, really expect anything good of any of the buggers there, and and um, you 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 put your energy into local um, struggles. Right. And maybe we should have been worried about Chomsky's endorsement. Has he not... Has he, has he picked a winner since Pol Pot? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think he's Sorry, had a shot. <laughs> well, I think he sort of... He's never, he's never backed a winner, let's say that. He might have predicted... Uh, <laughs> but uh, his own personal choice, I don't think he's ever has ever won that. I mean, he's done some marvellous work, Chomsky, you know. He, no, no, of course. He's done some not, tremendous uh, uh, things locally and he's helped uh, organisations in, in academic... Uh, Mike Long always refers to we're academic workers. Now. Right. <laughs> uh, yes. and, and, you know, Chomsky's done some good stuff. But no, I I think, as I say, the, the default position for someone on the left, uh, pretty, you know, an anarchist, is that you... you you don't expect uh, your beliefs to be, you know, kind of enacted in Parliament. You, 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 you think, well, the whole point is to try to work towards local self-sufficiency, local democracy, local stuff, rather than, uh, you know, um, expect anything much of those who obviously represent the interests of a, of a, of a ruling class. Absolutely. Well, let's let's focus yes. on our local our local concerns. Uh, what, how's how's this year been for you? This is our uh, very predictable <laughs> end of year review show. Um, everyone seems to do it, but we thought, why not? Let's let's do it. Let's look back on on the year. Uh, how's how's 2019 been for you, Jeff? 
Um, on a personal it's, level. It's been okay for me. Personally, I've um, quite enjoyed it in, in many ways. Mind you, I, I, I should say that I, I got um, prostate cancer and I was looked after absolutely superbly by... Uh, the National Health Service, as it is here in Spain. I received the most extraordinary treatment right the way through from the local doctor to the hospital looked after me. It was um, really exemplary. And I, I have to say that I felt lucky to be here rather than in the UK. And I remember when I came here 40 years ago, I had some illness and uh, my my sort of reaction was, well, I'm going back to England. I don't trust any medical uh, attention you might get in Spain. And today, the, the, the care that one is provided with by contributing to Social Security and paying a tax is, is tremendous. I, I, I couldn't be more, well, first of all, more grateful, but uh, to... to just fantastic, the, the attention that I've received. So from that point of view alone, it's been a, a, a... I mean, it's not nice to get cancer, but it's extraordinary to have received such fantastic uh, help. So from that point of view, it, it's been good. Right. First, it's been good. Um, and, uh, I, you know, from work point of view, there's been some interesting things too. The, the cancer scare you had was, was a couple of years ago. Did it, it came back though this year, did it? Yes. You, you know, you, they, they, they call it remission. Once yeah. you've got it, you kind of, uh, you just live with it. And in fact, mine was prostate cancer, which um, especially if you're, um, the older you are, the, the less terrible it is. Um, uh, and they've, they've got some very good treatment now. It, it, um, they used to just, uh, if it was bad, just cut your, uh, take your uh, prostate gland out. Mm. I had uh, this new treatment called brachytherapia. Brachytherapy, I, I don't know what it is in English, um, which uh, is far less aggressive, doesn't involve chemotherapy, um, but it does involve targeting the tumour um, much more locally. Okay. Um, and the the follow-up was just extraordinary every you know and, and there was it wasn't just technically brilliant the one the oncology department that uh, looked after me second or third in Europe um, yeah. in in the league tables if you look and see that the the you know the hospital clinical for example in in Barcelona is in the top five and the place that looked after me was just superb. And they follow it up. And then this year, men over 60 ought to get a yearly uh, scan to see about their prostate. And there's a certain measurement of it, PI, I think it's called. And if that goes over 1 or over 1.5, I think it is, it's done through a blood test. You do a blood test and it looks for this thing. Um, and if it goes above 1.5, there's a chance that you might have cancer of the prostate. And mine suddenly was uh, 9. Now, today, it's uh, 0.1. I mean, it's, wow. you know, and they check it. Every, it's just tremendous. So, yeah. yes, um, I, I got it a couple of years back, came, uh, and, and they just looked after me so brilliantly that now, at the moment, it's absolutely just not there. It doesn't mean it might not come back, but it's amazing how 
you know, how scary cancer is mm-hmm. and, and, of course, how awful it is uh, and how many people still die from it. My brother died of, of uh, pancreatic cancer this year mm-hmm. um, and that's, a, that's a still one that they're, they're having a lot of trouble. But they're, they're, it, it's, it, it, it is very uh, good to see not just uh, the tremendous treatment they do, but, but the, the way they treat you, the, the human, the humanistic uh, medicine. You know, they were all so kind, so supportive, so understanding of a you know, sort of nervous wreck and hypochondriac that I am. You know, just just tremendous. Well, that's great, great to hear. I can only echo your your feelings about the Spanish health service. We had a fantastic experience having our daughter here. And I'm lucky to to work, in fact, with the cooperative in a couple of institutions, one of which is the palliative care unit of the Oncology Institute of Catalonia, where we do some teaching. And it's their, their, their team there is a reference point in Spain, and we, they're constantly being visited by people to see how they do things. And they've transformed palliative care from something that was, I think before, synonymous with end-of-life care to something quite different. And as you say, quite humanistic, holistic. Uh, they do a lot of research. They 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 they've done a lot of great work, and and it's it's the, it's the kind of place you'd think it'd be depressing to go into teach, um, but you come out of there feeling affirmed. <laughs> you just you can see the work that they're doing, and it's one of the one of my favourite classes. So yeah, we're we're big supporters of the Spanish health service here. It's a fantastic system, and uh, well, we're really glad that you're in good health, Jeff. It makes me not want to complain about my year too much. <laughs> what What's your story then for for this year? Uh, I think twenty nineteen is pretty much sucked for me <laughs> from yeah. beginning. Well, yeah, I I I don't want to bore people with the whys and wherefores, but on a personal my, level, more you mean? On a personal level, I have not enjoyed this year. It's been a struggle. However, I think um, there have been quite a few positives on a on a work level. It's been a good year for the cooperative. I think we've finally reached that magic number of 20 members, which we've been trying to get to for a, for a while now. Great. That's, that's been a target for a while. I got re-elected as president, along with Alan Ritchie as, as vice, and we got a couple of other uh, members, James and Alice, into the, the Conselecto team. So that's been good to kind of rejuvenate the direction of the, the co-op as well. And, um, yeah, it's just been, I don't know, the, the TBLT course has been a highlight for, for me, uh, getting that up and running after so much work. We're now in our second iteration. First course, big challenge, but very enjoyable, and, and we had a fantastic group of people. And uh, to see that through uh, to the end, I think I felt it was a job well done. Yes, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed working with you. A, a lot of work it was, but I enjoyed Talking about it, setting it up, and 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 I think uh, the the first course we did was uh, very enjoyable, successful. We're learning. We're we're learning as we go. We we've agreed that after this second one, we'll um, have a general review and see where we go from here. But I think it's um, been a very very uh, good um, experience for me. It has been, and for me, I mean, to to have Mike Long involved has been fantastic, and Roger, 
uh, Gilles Bert, who I'm going to talk a bit about later as well, has really helped me get get my head around um, task-based language teaching. It's been a learning curve for us as well, uh, because I think in the, at the co-op level we do TBLT, but on a on a less uh, how can we say grandiose scale than than the way that Mike envisages it. I think that helps us, I think, bridge the gap between what Mike's doing and what a lot of our participants want to do with TBLT. But uh, anyway, it's certainly been inspiring. And uh, to have that kind of level of commitment and vision from someone, for people like Mike and, and Roger, rubs off. And in general, the, the co-op's been doing well. We've, we've had a number of interesting projects. We've had clients that have stayed with us. We've got the kind of community projects that we're doing with the mental health um, with Radio Nicosia, a partnership where I go out and teach in, um, in El Prat de Llobregat, in a, in a, can we say, one of the less salubrious neighbourhoods of uh, the kind of Barcelona metropolitan area. And that has been, for me, again, like teaching in the palliative care unit. It's just something that I just, <laughs> just, I just really enjoy, and I, I hope the students have enjoyed it as well, doing a kind of... Uh, TBLT meets community language learning meets I don't know what we're doing there. It's, I'll need to write it up at some point because it's been very, very interesting. These are classes that are inclusive of, of people with uh, mental health diagnoses uh, and uh, just people in general in the local community. And it's been it's been really, really good. And then I think, yeah, just doing this podcast the last two or three months has been good fun as well. So I think we're up to we're over a thousand listens now. Oh, marvellous. Uh, um, I think we've done pretty well. It's a kind of crowded market. It's probably a bit late in the game to be starting a podcast now, but I, I'm quite quite happy. I think it's had a good response. We've had some really good episodes. I think actually the one I enjoyed the most was you talking about your revolutionary <laughs> past. I think the one that um, other <laughs> it was very kind of you. I enjoyed, but I think Mike Long's was um, very good. Yes. Mike's was good, uh, Scott's was good, I enjoyed... And Scott's was remarkable, it's always fun to talk to Scott, yeah. Uh, speaking to Paul Walsh about precarity, I I, I think we've, we've done all right. Um, let's see how we can develop it in the coming year, but I'm, I'm quite excited about that too. I so. should just mention, for my um, the other thing I do is my work for Leicester University. I'm a tutor there for the... the master's program distance learning master's program in applied linguistics and TESOL um, and um, along with 30, 40 other universities Leicester went on strike uh, last month uh, extended into this month first couple of days uh, because of the precarity and the, the terrible conditions of people working in uh, the program and working in university in general right across the board the the kind of thing that's happened is uh, my contract for example like my zero hour contract no social security no no guarantees of work tomorrow that sort of throwing you bits of work as they come up that is now being extended further and further through the university teaching system and just to mention uh, my solidarity with all those who are affected by the disgraceful conditions and worsening conditions and the you know there's appalling so typical sort of the gap between these mad uh, salaries of the uh, of the top uh, administrators and those um 
actually doing the teaching and working. Yeah. Um, so that's what another um, thing that has to be said. 2019 has been a very bad year again for academic uh, workers. I was chatting to Roger about this the other day, in fact. He was talking about the, the workload on academics. And uh, I mean, it's not just in the UK, right? It's it's throughout Europe and I'm sure beyond. Colleagues in, in Holland, in Dutch universities, working to rule at the moment and refusing to answer emails after certain times of the day. So, I mean, the least we can say is that people are not putting up with it any longer. That's something we can be positive about 2019, I think, is not that conditions have improved, but that, that, that people are, are not prepared to take it quite so and encourage everybody to join a union or or, or join a cooperative you know um it, it really is a question of unity of strength don't stay isolated get involved with your community uh and and fight the buggers well yeah i mean i think that's should we get into our things of the year because yes. we, we have a chat and i i don't know if you thought about this but i did think about what would be the organization of the year and uh, I'm going to say the organization of the year for me is maybe the, the new TEFL Workers Union, which is a, an offshoot of the IWW or the, the Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World, based in London, I believe. And they've got some uh, traction, I think. They've really been pushing their agenda. They've been trying to get people signed up. They've been doing events. They've been supporting their colleagues in the Unite Union in Ireland with some of the the strikes there, for example, the Delphin School. So I would say, although I, I, I don't know that much about them, I just see them being very active and I think they should be applauded for standing up and forming a union specifically for workers in that kind of private school sector in the UK because they are, you know, their conditions are appalling. And uh, I think it's fantastic to see a group standing up for, for people in that sector. So yes, quite, I couldn't agree more. I, I must say I've been impressed this year with the IEL, uh, the uh, ELT Ireland advocates. They, they yeah. seem to have been very articulate and very strong and, and, and put uh, a shout in for them. Yes, and we're hoping to have an episode about the Irish situation or maybe two uh, hopefully two, in fact, and we've got uh, ELT Advocacy Ireland, the the group that've been part of um, the Teachers as Workers group, and I know some of them, and they've been working really hard to get teachers organised, and they've been also working with the Unite Union. So, yes, they're another another candidate for organisation of the year. I think, yeah, I, I've followed them on Twitter all year, and as you say, they've done their own work in their own uh, uh, area but they've also reached out um, you know to others as well and I think that's an extremely important thing too we, we have to try and build a, a network and I think they've done some great work and well done to them absolutely yeah the only one on that obvious one is uh, the extinction rebellion group there, there are a few things uh, I worry about the the way they're um, organising themselves. The, the organisation, the fact that it is so local and that they've avoided uh, big names and personalities, I think is marvellous. Once Time magazine calls Greater the, the the Woman of the Year, you know, you know, this this kind of danger signals ought to go off. Ah, uh, you mean yeah? They mean Greta Thunberg being yes, she's now Time magazine's of Woman of the Year. 
Mm. And I think that is a question of great concern rather than celebration. And I like the way Extinction Rebellion has, has avoided um, personality hype. On the other hand, I, you know, I, I, I think they ought to go after the real villains more than um, you know, causing disruption. I think. Uh, yeah, there's some questionable. I mean, I don't know why they disrupt underground train services when people taking the underground I know, trains are the ones who are not contributing. Yes, <laughs> that just seems so crazy. You know, to see these guys on top of the on the tube trains in London. And of course, you know, they get dragged off and filmed and it just doesn't do any good at all. It's a daft thing. You know, why do that? I <laughs> go and, you know, uh, stand outside BP's uh, main buildings and make it all, or block, you know, the lorries leaving and that kind of stuff. It does. But in general, I must say, it's good to see again that um, it's a network of very well local organisation. Um, and they, I, so I would um, give a slightly qualified uh, thumbs up to them. Okay, good stuff. Now before we get too far away from the ELT yeah, stuff, because I think yeah. we're going to get we're going to get away from that just now. I just wondered what your if you had a a publication from this year that you you would recommend in particular, an article or a book, maybe a book that I chose was uh, it's called Researching L two Task Performance and Pedagogy. And it's in honour of Peter Skeen. Uh-huh. The editors are Edward Wen and uh, Mohamed Ahmadian. Um, yeah. And there's very good articles in there, with chapters rather, yeah. by uh, Long, of course, it's in there, Zoltan Donier, Martin Bygate, Ryan McGuinney, Rod Ellis has got a chapter. Very good collection of work on stuff that Peter Skeen was so uh, always, I mean, he's he's still still working on it. The effects of motivation, limits of selective attention. Uh, the big thing, really, I suppose, about Peter was how well he looked at the question of the complexity of tasks and and how when you make different demands on people doing the task, you get different outcomes in terms of the accuracy, the lexis, the fluency of their production. Uh, he's been doing this for 30 years now. He's one, a good friend of mine, a marvellous guy, and uh, I think uh, it's, a, it's a good tribute to him. Um, mm -hmm. So that one. Good stuff. Um, well, my nomination for article is... Jordan and Gray. <laughs> no, no, sorry, no. Mistake in my notes here. Uh, I'm going to say, on a, as we're talking about task complexity, I'm going to, and you're much better read up on the research than I am, but I really liked the Alexandra Malitska, Roger Gilabert, and John Norris article from Needs Analysis to Task Design, Insights from an English for Specific Purposes Context, which is an article that we use on our course, and which... I always get a bit confused. It kind of copyrighted 2017, but I think it, it, it got published finally this year. Uh, anyway, what it does is it looks at needs analysis for hotel receptionists in, Catal in Catalonia, in, in Barcelona, in fact, and it looks at uh, a, a very thorough kind of TBLT type of needs analysis, but how to uh, incorporate issues of task complexity into the needs analysis itself. That's to say, asking the domain experts and, and the receptionists themselves 
uh, which tasks would be, more, would be more or less complex and what kind of factors would influence task complexity. And rather than drawing on the skiing model of task complexity, it draws on the, the Peter Robinson one. And uh, from there, it shows you how they developed three versions of a task, which is dealing with overbooking in a hotel and how you might manipulate different variables within the task design to to move from a, a simpler version of the task to a more complex one, which, as we know, is, is kind of what Long advocates as a way of sequencing tasks in, in syllabus design. And so it involves things like manipulating the number of elements in the task, the reasoning demands placed on the on the participants in the task, and it gives very clear examples. And, and I, what I love about these from a teacher's point of view is at the back in the appendix you get some of the materials they used, uh, the, the, the tasks themselves in terms of... Uh, how they're designed, and just a nice, a nice illustration of some of the issues involved in, in getting from needs analysis to actual pedagogic tasks, what you can take into account, and how different elements can be manipulated to produce different versions of a task. So well, you know, I agree. To... I think it's a great article. Uh, it's clear as a bell. Um, yeah. It you know people worry about the complexity of the TBLT uh, syllabus. The problem we face is, as you say, in your work where you're teaching, is, is whether you can actually, you know, have the resources to do the full version of, of Mike's TBLT. Right. Um, what's lovely about that article is that it, 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 it's just so clear, the idea behind it, that you, you once you've identified a task, that is relevant to your uh, to the people doing the course. Uh, how do you actually turn that into a syllabus? So what does that mean for for the tasks that they, the pedagogic tasks that they do? And it's just great the way that they lead you through it. And it's and it there's nothing complicated or intellectual or anything about it. It's just you know it, it's delightfully reasonable and and compel and, and and persuasive. Yeah. Um, and then the only, uh, only but very big problem is, uh, you know, how do you get the resources you need to, um, you know, to do all that work? And and then the question that you're very good at addressing is, is okay, well, uh, you know, how can we make a slightly lighter version that is true to the principles that doesn't involve quite so much uh, detail? Yeah, but I think, you know, the things that we can take from that in terms of designing tasks in our a more on-the-fly kind of way that, that that does show us how we can uh, add in more elements to a task, make it more complicated, see how how that might impact on production, whether it requires learners to use new input uh, more quickly or if you give them more planning time, what happens then? And these kind of things can be applied even when we don't necessarily have the resources to do uh, you know the hugely in-depth needs analysis that they did for that project. But, you know, as we as you know as well, there's still a lot of open questions. There's, it's still not very clear. The research doesn't seem to have very satisfactory answers yet about the effects of task complexity on production. But it's an, another step in the right direction, isn't it? Of, of, yes, of um, it, this is an interesting area. And it's, why, it's interesting <laughs> that you uh, choose uh, that great article um, and that I've chosen Researching L2 Task Performance in honour of Peter Skian. Uh, and as you quite rightly say, Skian has a fairly different, different in important ways, 
uh, view of, of task complexity than, than the one Robinson, as you, as you mentioned, which is the one that Long and uh, Roger tend to go for more. And, and, and as you say, what, uh, what, what that suggests is that we don't understand completely what the effects of different uh, changes to the task design have on, you know, output or, or, or learning generally. So, yes, it's a very interesting area. What is the effect of, different, of, of, of twiddling different variables uh, when, when designing and, 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 and carrying out the tasks? Right. Fascinating stuff. And, and, and a lot of progress has been made. And, and I, I personally, I, I've always kind of tended a bit more towards Peter Skeen's uh, view. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting beside him, listening to Mike Long give a plenary at some, and we were muttering to each other. The, 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 the most friendly of rivalries is, uh, um, and, and, you know, we're, we're in the same team, as it were, but they mm-hmm. are interesting questions. And they're not ho- horribly academic, sort of ivory tower things. They're practical, interesting questions that are, best uh, worked on by by doing them actually you know if you do a course treat it one way or another and and see what happens yes good okay shall we move on to less uh, teaching related things of the year yeah um what, what do you want to go with song book film um I, the next one i've got here on my little crib sheet in front of i film and i put parasite ah right yeah uh south korean film i forget the name of the director he's made a real name for himself i think this is i don't know how many he's done now but this one I went to see it a couple of weeks ago in barcelona and i was really knocked sideways by it it's a most extraordinary uh, film. It's, it's like six films in one. It's got elements of it's, it's some of the cinema, the, the filming, the cinematography is just extraordinary. It's kind of weird and mad and um, very politically kind of important. It's, it's caused a hell of a stir. I think it won a prize at the Cannes Film or the Venice Biennale, one of them. It, it swept the board. And now it's very much a sort of cult thing. Tremendous film about uh, a rich family in um, South Korea that take on well really it's the, the the it starts with a very poor family uh who manage to to get their way in as and work as servants for the rich family and as i say it, it's preposterous it's humorous it's compelling visually extraordinary a, a real tour de force and i i came out reeling <laughs> you sent me a, a message on an email yeah. <laughs> after you yeah i mean i i haven't seen it i have to say well that's the uh, one that's the film for me that i would i i've seen a few of the the blockbusters like for example scorsese's thing which i thought was utterly awful oh i haven't finished it yet no spoilers <laughs> i'm creeping through it bit by bit you know tired of de niro and the rest of the bunch uh, doing this and uh the joker i thought was appalling as well Empty, yeah. vacuous, dreadful. Seems to divide people that one. Yeah, I've seen. I heard people really hating it. People who loved it. <laughs> Marmite ones, isn't it? I must say, yeah. I just thought. I'm glad I, I didn't see it in the cinema. I saw it uh, 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 on the telly. 
But I must say, I thought it was really self-indulgent, empty, pointless, dreadful. I haven't seen any of this stuff, I have to say, because I end up just watching movies my daughter wants to watch when we go, when we go to the cinema. <laughs> so what, what's her favourite film? Her favourite film has been Frozen 2, <laughs> I which I have it. to say, <laughs> it made me realise that Frozen 1 was actually quite a good movie because Frozen 2 is just... We should, we should uh, point out that... How old is she? Four? She's four, yeah. Yeah, uh, she's for Elsa from Frozen as her hero, or her, her heroine, and she just loves it. And I, I think I took her to see one of the movies in the Dragon series, How to Train a Dragon. And the thing that she remembered the most about that movie was the trailer for Frozen Two. So it'd been on the agenda. We finally went to see it, but um, I just have more memory of watching these kind of movies with her than anything else. I think I saw uh, I saw the Almodovar, the the Lori Gloria. Yeah, uh, you know that's all right. Yeah, uh, I, all right, exactly. Six out of ten, that sort of. Yeah, it's nothing like some of his earlier movies. No. Um, so I'm going to go for a kids' movie, and of all the movies I've been subjected to, the one I've actually enjoyed the most was The Secret Life of Pets Two, <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> I have to say I I laughed a lot. And I needed that. And uh, in fact, my wife and I both laughed a lot more more than Alba did. And it just has this fantastic cat character that I enjoyed a lot. So I'm not going to go in deep into this at all. But movie of the year for me, Secret Life of Pets 2, or Mascotas Dos, as it's called here. And uh, let, let's move on quickly. Do, do you have a... A series of the year? The, yes, what, uh, what I think Chernobyl's got to be it. Uh, have you seen it? Say again, sorry? Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl. Uh, I don't know if you say it. Chernobyl, Chernobyl. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I've forgotten about that. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Just extraordinary. A brilliant piece of work. Um, yeah. I mean, compelling, awful, but tremendous... Uh, uh, work, I think, just just marvelous. That's that's, you know, the new the new media, isn't it? It's taken over. I mean, the the, the other, only other one I I watched and quite enjoyed was a, a ridiculous uh, one called Killing Eve. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I have seen some of that. Yeah, a British one. It's mad. Uh, <laughs> murdering it's quite an interesting sort of relationship between her and uh, the, the the reluctant cop who's so a person who's trying to hunt her down but right. um very funny very slick and um you know just not terribly serious at all but no, i no. enjoyed it but but no doubt in my mind that Cher- chernobyl is the number one well, yeah, no, I have to uh, admit that I'd forgotten about that, but it, it was amazing. The whole atmosphere they created in that series, incredible. The music and everything was very good. But I'm going to go for a series called Mr. Robot. I don't know if you if you know it. No, um, Mr. Robot. It's an American series. It's now in its fourth season and final season. And I think it's due to finish next week or the week after. And it's a kind of techno thriller about some hackers who try to bring down a kind of Apple type corporation. And it's beautifully made, uh, especially this last season. The cinematography in it's fantastic. It's got very filmic, dramatic kind of elements in it too. When I say dramatic, I mean theatre like production. The main character 
as is typical of these things, he's a kind of tortured genius. Um, but he's got dissociative personality disorder. Uh, he imagines, well, that he's, he's kind of battling with his, uh, alter ego or more than one alter ego, in fact. And that's the kind of psychological twist to the whole thing. But I have to say, you know, it's been a patchy series. The first season was very good. In the middle, it lost its way a little bit, but this last season has been incredible. Oh, well, uh, I've missed that completely. What is it, Netflix or...? No, it's not on Netflix. It's on a... HBO or one of... No, it's not even on any of these things. I think you can get it on Amazon Prime Ah. uh, now. Uh, but not the not the last season. But I presume it'll all be available once this season's uh, this season's finished. Well, I don't know if you'd like it or not, but I'd certainly I've really enjoyed it. And this last season's had uh, two or three episodes that were, I just felt were outstanding, and and uh, they were better made than a lot of films I've seen recently, including uh, the Secret Life of Pets too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that would be. And also, I just wanted to mention something that I just found quite enchanting which was the radio play of version of proust's in search of lost time a book that i've had never read <laughs> i had two volumes of in search of lost time by marcel proust and I, I of course read up to the famous madeline sequence where he dips his cake in tea and all this memory comes flooding back lovely how marvelous that was yes oh my god and so it was a chance for people like me who'd never really read the book properly to get an idea of a feeling, at least, of, of uh, some of the other parts of it. Well, where had, is it on BBC? Yeah, it was Radio 4. Derek Jacobi was playing the, the the narrator. And they did the whole damn lot, did they? Well, they did 10 episodes of an hour, so there's 10 hours of it. I got very enchanted by it, lost in it. They did some interesting things with music, so they had these little themes, that uh, musical motifs that are in the book. And I'm still trying to find out what music they use for some some pieces of it. But um, anyway, very nicely done. And I enjoyed it a lot. I got lost in that. Uh, No pun intended. Since we're talking about music, I I noticed you published something on Twitter yesterday. Go on. I was thinking about it and and pop music, even jazz. I'm, you know, I really, I don't know any jazz that I, uh, the last 15 years that knew. I mean, I, so... It was the classical music I chose in the end, the very famous Bach Cantata 140, recorded by the Netherlands Bach Society, and it's on YouTube. And I think it's a very, very interesting... um, This has been recorded by everybody. It's a beautiful, one of the finest, I think, certainly one of the most popular. And I think they do it tremendously well. It's a lovely setting... Uh, it's a slightly shaky start, but the tremendous performances all round, wonderful unity, the good pace, and tremendous definition. Yeah. Do you ever read all Kenneth Tynan stuff, the critic Kenneth Tynan? No. Tynan was a very important critic, uh, theatre and uh, literary critic in the seventies, and he used to talk about definition, high definition. Mm. And this uh, really kind of um, made me think of Tynan when I heard it. It was just so... The recording is not, you know, exceptional, but the way they managed to bring out the the, the shifts uh, during the work, the the, the singers and the the soloists, the oboists, the 
the violins together and it's very compact it's not a it make a beautiful noise uh, and there's i don't know probably 30 of them so i think it's just a beautiful beautiful rendition of, of one of my favorite pieces of music oh fantastic oh, I, i'm a classical music ignoramus I have to say, so I'm. I, I see. I, um, take your word for it. Uh, Liliana uh, immediately put like because she she and I share love of Bach and and other uh, classical stuff. I was glad to see that she. Uh, she must have aristocratic blood as well. I just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Clearly, don't have your culture. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit sad well, about this. Well, what about you? Because, I mean, you're into all that. I see you swapping uh, with people of all, all sorts of stuff that I've never yeah. heard of. I, I think this is the year that officially my finger fell off whatever pulse it happened to be <laughs> resting on as far as music's concerned because I realised <laughs> I started using, uh, again, late to everything because I'm, I'm, you know, I like records and vinyl. Uh. Uh, yeah, but I, obviously not very convenient on the bus. So... Finally, I started using Spotify, which is a kind of streaming music service. Yeah, yeah I use it, that. It told me what my most listened to song was, so I'm just going to say what it is. It's a rap song by Homeboy Sandman and Idan, and it's called That Moment When. And I like it a lot because I um, Idan is a, is a rapper, kind of producer from Boston who uses a lot of heavy psychedelic rock, kind of 60s, 70s stuff. Uh, in his productions, and then people rap over it. And this this song, it's kind of a kind of half asleep heavy rock. Um, it's kind of heavy rock soundtrack with a half asleep kind of vocal on top of it, talking about insomnia and and uh, it, it, it <laughs> chimed with me because this has been a year of fucking not sleeping very well for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll say no more. And and guess what? It was released in twenty eighteen. And I realised that there was hardly anything released this year, so that's why I mean when I say I really don't keep up with it anymore. It must be a you know middle age now is fully set in, and uh, I don't have a fucking clue. So <laughs> I'll I'll put an honourable mention with something I think was released this year is a a, a dance uh, track called Pick Up by DJ Cozy, and I'll, I'll mention this simply because Alan Ritchie, my good friend and vice president of the of the co-op. Um, bought me a ticket to, to Sonar, the, the big electronic yes. music festival in Barcelona this year, and I hadn't been for a couple of years. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And he, he, he closed the night, I think, must have put that song on about half past five in the morning or something. <laughs> and, uh, well, we'll put links to all this stuff. And if whether you like Mozart or house music or, or hip-hop, you might find something you like. But obviously you don't listen to us for music recommendations, do you? <laughs> Now, after recording this, I did realise that DJ Cozy's pickup is also a recording from 2018. But never mind. Let's hear from some other SLB members about their things of 2019. So I'm here with the SLB member Simon Courtney. And Simon, you have a movie of the year to talk to us about? Well, I wouldn't say movie of the, uh, of the year, Neil, but I would say a Christmas film of the year, which was Klaus. Klaus? Yes, excellent. Uh, highly recommended. I've seen it. Is it on Netflix? It is on Netflix. 
Uh, it's about uh, a postman. I won't tell anymore. I don't no spoilers. Right, but it's not your typical Santa Claus movie. Uh, it's not your typical Santa Claus movie. I think it's quite adult orientated, as these films tend to be these days. And it's it's an animation. It is an animation. Alba McMillan, what do you think of Klaus, the Santa movie? Do you like it? Go on. Yes or no? <laughs> She's nodding. <laughs> That's a yes. Any other visual highlights of the year, movies or series that you... Uh, there's a good Spanish series on Netflix called Hache, which is set in uh, in Barcelona, um, which has a female lead, which I think is a, an interesting take on the gangster genre. Okay. And did you watch um, uh, The Italian? No, The Irishman. Yes, I did, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch The Irishman? I did watch The Irishman, yeah. It took, you... uh, it took us most of the Sunday that we watched And? Uh, I think it's also worth it. I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> well, there we go. Di- different differences of opinion. I fell asleep so much, yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs> right, so I'm here with... Anita Derechkei. Another member of our cooperative. And Anita, what would you like to share with us about your favourite things of the year? A movie, a series, a book? A drink of the year? Maybe you're <laughs> believing <Yeah. it. laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was this year that it was um, out, but Black Mirror, I really like Black Mirror. Yeah, there was a new season of Black Mirror this year. Yes, right? yes. And I've caught up on the previous episodes as well. And it's quite scary how similar it is to real life. And, and do you have a favourite episode of Black Mirror? Um, What's the title? The pink one, you know, when they talk about the social credit system. Yes. Like, what was it called? Nosedive, I think it's. it's Nosedive, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. Where everyone has to kind of rate each other and exactly. like how nice their coffee was. And... I really like that one. Yeah, very good. And this is Ellen of the cooperative. And do you have a favourite anything, book, moment, person? I do. Person? My memory is so shit. I'm Cat of the year. Yeah, I'm going to get beyond my cat. <laughs> oh, my cat's fantastic. I'm not just my cat. Um, Co-op president of the year. <laughs> well, my God. Co-op president of the year, Neil. I'm in bed. <laughs> I'll pay you later. Book. I just, I just read 1984. That's not really... Ah, did you know? Yeah. And? That's not, I've got nothing to do with um, 2000. Well, that's what I meant. Did you enjoy it? Because I... I find, it quite, much so. I find it quite hard work, that book. Oh, do you? Yeah, I don't know yeah, why. But it's quite short and manageable. And yeah. In that way, even though the, the topic is quite full on and so, so appropriate. Appropriate day. because we're appropriate all, we are living in this dystopian universe exactly. where... Exactly. Yeah. Dystopian yeah. present. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that was good. That was a highlight of my year. Very good. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can I add the highlight? Please do. Me joining SLB. Oh yes. Oh man. I can I say training session of the year (laughs) 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 was Anita's session on Slack, not Zoom. Slack, (laughs) which even though I abandoned it after 30 seconds, was amazing. (laughs) And uh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) It's sad to think. I guess neither one of us wants to be the first to say wants to be the first to say goodbye 
And now back to me and Jeff, and we're going to talk about non-ELT related books. I went for Ian McEwan's Machine Like Me. Okay. Not one of his very best, but I enjoyed it a lot, and I couldn't... A pretty bad year, I thought. I didn't like any of the bookers. Pretty lean pickings. I, I, I read some lovely books, but not not very few of them from uh, 2019. I, novels I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so that would be mine. Ian McEwan, Machines Like Me. Um, yeah, have you read it? Nope, but I remember you telling me about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It he kind of uh, it's written in two thousand and fourteen, maybe sort of you know contemporary. But the history is actually rather different. So, for example, Britain lost the Falkland War, and so weird little bits like that of history have been changed. And lots more advance has been made in um, artificial intelligence. So that now available are these really very, very lifelike robots who, for all intentions and purposes, look look very lifelike and can walk around in supermarkets and not be recognised as robots. So it's the the story is about this chap who who buys one of these. Turin, Alan Turin's still alive. In okay. charge of the project, and so he he buys one of these state of the art machines. There's only fifty of them, or it's a sort of you know such a slightly like um, Blade Runner, you know. Yeah. And it's what happens his relationship with his girlfriend and and this machine. Um, and uh, I like McEwan's writing. I think he writes extremely well. And it's a it's just sort of interesting. Uh, I I would say it's like. You know, I give it sort of three and a half, maybe four stars in a five-star system. So it sounds like a bit like that movie uh, from a couple of years ago. Was it Ex Machina? Did you did you watch that? Yes, it's not actually very like that at all. But it's, ah, okay, it's in that kind of area. Yes. Okay. Uh, what well, is it? A utopian or dystopian vision of technology? Not even, or? It's not really either utopian or dystopian. There's nothing much worse or uh, about the way society is. I'm certainly not terribly optimistic, but it's more about how how far can we go with what, what you know. There are sort of slight kind of interesting ontological epistemological arguments in there. You know, what does the machine know? What's it like to what what makes us different and stuff like that. Okay. One more. I bought this in an airport coming back from the UK, and it's called The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, just, as I said, it was sort of airport reading, and I really enjoyed it. Thoroughly, it tremendously well uh, written, and... A page turner. Okay. Tremendously well written. Uh, about Victorian uh, England, life in Victorian England, uh, and I, I just read it from, which I very rarely do, read it from start to finish, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Very good. Uh, was it unputdownable? Well, yes, it really was a bit like My that. In fact, uh, not, not much else to do in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> so it was yeah. a good opportunity to, you know, really get stuck in to to reading it. And when I got home, having read half of it or so, I, I really did. I just sort of 
uh, a couple of days later thought I'm gonna you know and I, I finished it in a, in a couple of days I'd, I'd be interested to hear what other people might think because it's it's not it, well it, it surprised me that I I liked it so much okay I haven't read a single novel published this year I mean, wow. I've read novels but none <laughs> none that were published this year and I think this is kind of typical of me I just don't tend I don't I don't give a shit what yeah. the latest thing is I'd rather wait for a few years to see if it's still read or you know so I'm going to talk about something published well in fact it's the Thomas Pynchon's ah. last novel um, I think published in 2013 and it's called Bleeding Edge and it's definitely not his greatest work by any manner of means it's nowhere near as good as Gravity's Rainbow or Mason and Dixon which I also read this year but I read that again so I'm not going to count that Bleeding Edge, uh, it's 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 very entertaining, and it's more one of his detective stories, but it's better than um, Inherent Vice, I think. And it's got this fantastic character, the the, the detective in it is a kind of fraud investigator, Maxine Tarno, and it's set around about the time of the Twin Towers, Attack on the Twin Towers in New York. And I just found it very entertaining and interesting not just because I love Pynchon, I love the way he names characters, I love the kind of paranoia that it inhabits or it haunts his stories but it's just because it goes back to when the internet and this digital age we live in was a bit younger and it's kind of a shock to the system to realise how long we've been living in that kind of mode, how, how long we've been dominated by the internet uh, how it's changed so, you know, you kind of get a, a little bit of shock about how much time's passed and we've been dependent on this technology for a lot longer than maybe we maybe realise. But it, it's it's a time of, you know, slow connections. <laughs> and uh, even in New York, not much broadband going on. And, and um, Is it long? Yeah, it's it's quite long. It's not one of his longest. Let's see, I've got it, I've got it in front of me. It stretches to 477 pages. So it's readable. Uh, for me, V is the finest novel. It's my number one. Uh, it, ah, more than Gravity's Rainbow. Yes, mm. I, I love Gravity's Rainbow, but I think V is better. I know I'm in a minority on that, but I. Uh, so for me, Pynchon is uh, the pinnacle. You know, even Moby Dick has to get. <laughs> and, uh, I love Pynchon, and I love Gravity's Rainbow, and I even. I am afraid I just so well. We, we've talked about this, and I I really had trouble reading subsequent books of his. After. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the against the day is something I still struggle with. I haven't managed to read that yet. And uh, but V, do you think V's better than or Vineland? I thought you were more of a fan of Vineland. Well, Vineland is tiny. I I love it, but it's not. You know, no. Okay. I think V is his masterwork. I, of okay. course. Most people say Gravity's Rainbow is, but I think one thing about Gravity's Rainbow is that the counterforce is just hopeless, really a, a tiny bit at the end. Um, and I don't think it's uh, it's got the sweep and the... I mean, of course, it does have enormous sweep, but it doesn't quite rival... Maybe it's just because I read V first and it just knocked me... I mean, I just could not believe what I was reading when I read V for the first time. It just... Astonishing, beautiful, 
funny, profound, wonderful stuff. And of course, Gravity's Rainbow is marvellous. All the set pieces, you know, the sure. the sweets and <laughs> or the banana party. Uh, the, 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 sweet, the sweets, uh, I have to say, uh, uh, <laughs> the, just to tell people what we're talking about, a scene where uh, an American uh, soldier or uh, Lieutenant, I think he is, Lieutenant Slothrop, is subjected to <laughs> how can we say it? Just British boiled sweets, one after the other, just with the most horrible centers to them. They just pretending to like them. Yeah, try this. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a link to it. I think there's a web page where somebody's like copy pasted that section so people can see what we're talking about. Absolutely, absolutely hilarious. I've got to put a word in for Mason and Dixon, and I think it's a fantastic novel. You know, a friend of mine who I was at university with, and I see with. Um, when we discovered Pynchon, and he's now in um, Australia, I, and he described Mason and Dixon as a love story, which I think is rather good. I, I think yeah. their relationship is tremendous. Um, and again, there's all sorts of the sort of wonderful fireworks you expect from, from Pynchon. And it's got a mechanical talking duck that can go... <laughs> <laughs> goes so fast like flying through the air that it turns invisible i mean what's not to love uh about that anyway so yeah that books books the other one I'm, i was going to mention at the risk of sounding like a horribly pretentious fucker is uh not from this year in fact from 1994 and it's a book of essays by joan kopchek and it's about lacan and foucault and it's called Read My Desire, and it's a kind of Lacanian attack on the historicists. And I just, I'm just mentioning it, and maybe it's something we'll come back to another podcast because we don't talk about this stuff very much, because it made me change the way I thought about Foucault, who previously I was uh, more in line with, I think, in the way that I thought about philosophy and, and how to look at the world. What, um, you mean uh, this, the, the book you're recommending uh, criticises Foucault? Yeah, um, and in particular, Judith Butler it has a, a very good essay on uh, Judith Butler's view of uh, gender identity, um, which is something I looked into a lot when I was doing my PhD, and it's something that stayed with me a lot and influenced me a lot in the way I thought about identity in general. But it's given me a more of a, I guess, I guess uh, it's, it's set me into a more psychoanalytic or Lacanian way of looking at things, looking at subjectivity that um, I think could be more politically productive than, than Foucault's, which sometimes just seems to be there's like no way out of these kind of power uh, relations. Um, and uh, for that reason, I found it very kind of progressive. And it set me back, been reading a lot of Freud this year as well, so maybe go and read again some of the Freudian classics. And? Go on. Go on, get ripped. Go on. <laughs> Rip yeah, into me. Uh, we'll have another. But I, mm. I just, uh, I meant, and so what, when you reread Freud, were you suitably appalled by his nonsense? Or? Well, some of it's appalling. Some of it I find highly entertaining, you know. Oh, well, it's, it's certainly entertaining. <laughs> Poor old Wolfman and his. Yes, I mean, he's just fucking nuts. <laughs> Well, uh, I anyway, think... I know Lacan uh, sets great store by. Well, I, I know he he thinks Freud, which of course Freud was influential. Of course, he was, and and lots of stuff. But I, I have you read a book called Why Why Freud Was Wrong? Uh, no, I haven't. But very I famous, um, quite popular. But I think 
Very well researched and, and actually um, not bad at all. I, I found it, you know, I, I mean, I am absolutely dead set against Freudian nonsense. You know, the one I like, um, uh, probably the best antidote is uh, Life Against Death, Norman O'Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Life Against Death. Have you read it? No, nope, I haven't. It, uh, Psychoanalytic Theory of History. Uh, he radical, uh, one of the preferred thinkers in the 1960s when the Situationists and the loony left was up. And he kind of reinterprets Freud in a way that I find absolutely compelling. I, I have to say, I haven't been back to look at it for, you know, 30 years or more. I would recommend that to you. I'd be very interested to hear what you might think of it. Okay, I'll, I'll definitely take a look at that, yeah. Sorry, I was rather stealing your thunder there. So you are recommending no, no, the series of essays by someone critical just- of... Have made you think again about Foucault. I would just recommend it to anyone who is interested in in Foucault, for example, and hasn't considered a, a, a psychoanalytic perspective. Because I think the key difference there is that for Foucault, everything is visible. You know, the panopticon idea that every kind of subject position can be controlled, uh, is subject to power. Whereas, of course, a psychoanalytic perspective would say that there's something that's always going to escape uh, surveillance. There's some, you know, there's part of the psyche that's never fully controllable and for me i think i found it politically theoretically invigorating to read that but i think that's something we should get into another time if anyone's remotely fucking interested <laughs> so i wouldn't recommend it to anyone unless that was what they were into anyway already uh that kind of Foucauldian historicist idea or, or or judith butler's kind of view of gender identity and sexuality well that leads me on because talking about attacking or defending freud I don't know if you've got... Do you have a favourite podcast? Do you no. Because I'm not sure you listen to podcasts that much. I, I've listened to... I've just started listening to old Bill... Um, uh, SLA guy. Um, ah, Van Patten. Van Patten, yeah. 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 That, that, that I've only listened to in the last two or three weeks because it was mentioned on Twitter and he's, he's, he's quite sort of amusing... Um, so no, I, I'm not someone who listens to a lot of podcasts. He's he's amusing, but I think I, I I've passed peak Van Patten, and I can't handle it anymore. anymore. I I agree, actually. I think it's uh, a step too far. I think it goes right over the top. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I suppose that's part of the kitsch uh, fun to be had with this podcast. But it's it's anyway. Um, I'm not going to mention an ELT one. I'm going to mention two philosophy related ones. Uh, one of which is called Why Theory. And it's um, Todd McGowan and Ryan Engley, and they're both kind of psychoanalytic Lacanian thinkers, and they talk a lot about film and culture and economics and these kind of things through that lens. And they did two episodes very recently, which was defending Freud from the typical attacks, acknowledging that Freud's there to be attacked, there to be criticised, but saying where they think that the people against Freud and against psychoanalysis get it wrong. And where where they could attack Freud if they if they shifted their focus a little bit more. So I found that very interesting uh, as a defence of Freud, and that's that podcast called Why Theory. And the other podcast I've been really enjoying is one called The Fundamentalists, and it's unusual because it's hosted by philosopher Peter Rollins. Uh, he's Northern Irish, again quite influenced by Lacan 
and the kind of post-structure lists. But he does a podcast with a stand-up comedian called Elliot Morgan, and it's quite funny. He he's the innocent or the the naive guy to the, uh, playing playing that kind of role alongside the the philosopher, and it's the kind of most interesting kind of self-help stuff that I could possibly imagine from my perspective. And I found it really useful with different ways of processing stuff that happens around me and, and the way I think and the way I personally behave. Bringing, bringing in like psychoanalysis, even theology and other, other things that I would never have probably considered. So that's it. I would say, yeah, if you're at all interested in any, any of this kind of stuff I'm rambling on about, you might enjoy the fundamentalists. And, okay. Uh, that's it. I've got one uh, blog... Um, Idiot Joy Sholan. Do you, do you follow oh, yes. that? Yeah. I think he's a very entertaining and interesting writer. Okay. Idiot Joy I'm, Sholan. I'm, what's his name? Sam Sam Kiss, I think he's... Yes. Sam Kiss or Sam Chris? Sam Chris, yes. Sam Chris. It's mm. K-R-I-S-S. Yep. Idiot Joy Sholan. I enjoyed that as well. I think I followed one of your links to, to that. Um, have you got a person of the year that's not Greta Thunberg? <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly were a poor thing, honestly. No, my God, I, I, I admire her enormously. I think she's a very important figure, obviously. But I've really enjoyed this year Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens. Yes. I think this year started with her responding to attacks on her because they found a video of her dancing when she was a bit younger, dancing on a rooftop. And I think she just responded to that in the the most fantastic way. She's very able. She destroyed Mark Zuckerberg in the Congress hearings about Facebook and its role in uh, influencing uh, elections and and, uh, voting patterns and these kind of things. And I just think uh, if there's one kind of person the British Labour Party needs, it's somebody uh, like her. Uh, you know who I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yes, of course. I, I, as you, I remember seeing that at, at the hearing. Absolutely tremendous. Yeah, I think a great example to follow of not, you know, of being principled, of of not of not taking bullshit answers, um, and and keeping at it. And she, she's yeah, she's my person of the year. If I had one, it would be, and I don't even know his name, but he's um, in charge of Mafui Lodge in Zambia, responsible for trying to protect elephants in Zambia. Utterly brilliant man who's done a great deal in that area. So that, now I I, I hadn't thought about it, but I'm just full of admiration for his work and what he's doing to to try, oh, what's a horribly losing battle against uh, what's going on there. But um, so that's what I, I shout out for him, for his work trying to save elephants. Great. And I'll just have a shout out for my, uh, our, our uh, colleagues in the co-op who have just been a fantastic bunch. And this year we've had, uh, we've moved forward a lot thanks to the collective efforts of a lot of different people in the co-op. Okay been really great talking to you again happy um, christmas everybody happy christmas and happy new year or happy hanukkah whatever happy festive season whatever you're enjoying enjoy it and 
Thank you for listening and thanks for all your support for SLB and for our podcast in 2019. To help us out, please leave a rating or follow us on whatever podcasting platform you use. Check out our website at slb.coop where you can find also all the show notes from the podcasts. Fantastic 2020. Cheerio.